This episode of Core Lords is brought to you by Better Beer, a core beer from a couple of core lords themselves. You might be familiar with Matt and Jack, the inspired unemployed. Well, they got together with their buddy, Nick, and they just wanted to create a beer that they thought was missing from the market, and that's exactly what they did. How'd they make the beer better? The answer was simple. Remove the bad and add more of the good. So they teamed up, created better beer, and together created their dream beer. A refreshing lager that, in their words, is the crispest beer in the world. The ultimate Oprah Tinfrey. There are not many zero-carb beers out there, and the ones that are out there are pretty rank. These ones are tasty, crispy, and bloody delicious. Big thanks to Better Beer for climbing on board and sponsoring Core Lords. Takes a Core Lord to back a Core Lord. Get on the zero-carbs today and rip in responsibly. Our core lord today is Californian shaper Britt Merrick of Channel Island Surfboards. CI and Merrick, man. I mean, it does not get much more iconic than that combo. Britt's dad, Al, of course, started CI back in the 60s and pretty much indisputably became the most influential shaper of the 80s and 90s through things like his revolutionary design, but also as the mentor slash creative vision for Tom Curran and Kelly Slater, who spearheaded high-performance surfing on the CI designs and changed the way we all surf. Like, there is no surfer alive who did not benefit from the developments that these three surfers came up with. And as a result, there probably wasn't a surfer who was even half-decent who hasn't at one stage or another stepped onto a CI. That's how powerful Merrick and CI is. Britt grew up in a household that was just saturated in surf. He absorbed the conversations and the ruminations from the great minds that visited the house. And just through osmosis alone, he was able to just carve out his own distinguished career and emerge as his own man with a powerful creative vision that sits perfectly in line and in tune with the values of what CI has always stood for. High performance shreddery. Now, this interview was something that been trying to get on the table for a while now. I've been talking a lot with Devin Howard, the core lord of the highest order, who's been at CI for a few years now. We uh, were communicating about getting a chat with Brit, particularly around the time that I was making Free Scrubber, the Tom Curran search lost in Central America film that showcases TC just ripping the absolute beans off Mexican point breaks in that classic buttery style on those beautiful experimental twin fins, one which went into production and is now actually called the Free Scrubber. But funnily enough, despite the fact CI have churned out some of the most popular alternative and free-thinking board shapes of the past decade, things like uh, the Fishbeard, CI Mid, and most recently the Bobby Quad and G-Skate, I mean, even the Neckbeard is far from a conventional high-performance outline. But despite those models just selling through the roof and everyone loving them, it's pinpoint precision and high-performance Formula One surfboards that truly get Brit's motor running. Uh, he has had incredible success with uh, Stab in the Dark in particular. A couple of wins there. And you only need to look at the surfing that Joao Shanka has been doing on tour in the past couple of years to know that this dude is on point. Yeah, man, the guy's just absolutely on fire. So it's a full credit to him that he's managed to climb out from under the shadow of the goat, Al Merrick. And not just that, one other incredible feature of the CI story is that Brit, along with a lot of the staff and team writers, actually bought the company back from Burton. And now it is 100% employee owned. So it's a family institution and the Merrick name stands strong at the pinnacle of the CI experience. Hope you enjoy this chat. I certainly had an epic time with Brit and, yeah, core lord of Mondo Proportions. Enjoy. Ain't no sunshine when she's gone. Ooh. Ain't no sunshine when she's gone. This house ain't no home. Yeah. Get it, India. We're going to India. 
How are you, man? Welcome to Ain't That Swell. Welcome to Core Lords. Britt Merrick, far out. What a pleasure to sit down and have a chat with you, buddy. Uh, thanks, man. I'm excited to chat with you. I listen to the show all the time, and uh, I dig it. Man, you guys are classic. I'm <laughs> talking to you, actually. Oh, that's good, man. That's good to hear. It's uh, it's always, I always wonder how it's going to go down with, uh, you know, through the, I guess, through the filter of uh, American surf culture and growing up over there. Is it, <laughs> how does it fly with you guys? Well, you know what? I love Aussie culture, man. I, I love it. You know, um, one of my best buddies is Australian, our team manager over here, Brent Power, and I just eat it up. I eat up all the Aussie stuff and like, Every time I'm listening to you guys, I'm trying to learn. Half the time, I like I have no idea what you're talking about, but I love it. <laughs> oh, that's classic, man. Yeah, Smithy just had um, Dane Gadowskis on the other day, and it was just so cool to revisit, you know, that whole Californian surf culture thing as well. Because, you know, when I was a grom growing up, like, it was, it, it was the epicenter, man. Like, you know... Uh, a lot to do with your dad, a lot to do with Karen, a lot to do with Slater when he came on the scene. But, you know, it was the, the hotbed. But before that, I mean, it was always, you know, far out, the epicenter of surf culture, really. I mean, you know, the Hollywood vibes, the the beaches that came out of there. I'm talking like 60s and all that sort of stuff. Um, it's just such a powerful, powerful place in, in global surf culture. Yeah, right. I, I get that. But it's funny because I kind of look at Australia that way. I mean, I'm sure America has some of the history and, and pop culture and stuff, but I'm I'm like a performance surf competition guy, and I always look at Australia as the epicenter, really. Mm. Yeah, well, are, are we're about the same age, mate. I'm 46. I'm, uh, I, yeah. yeah, so I guess, like, you know, we grew up in that time where – competition surfing uh big big superstars were really starting to flex their muscles your currens your carols your okies etc um yeah it's kind of like a a real different scene to the 70s california counterculture that was going on but i mean we were lapping it up yeah you know what's happening over here with me personally because because of my dad like you know i've I grew up with Tom Curran, like an older brother and all that stuff. So that felt pretty normal to me. But then when my dad started shaping for international guys, like, um, you know, Sean Thompson would always come stay at the house and Martin Lynch would come stay and, and all these other guys from like other places would come. And I was always intrigued with them, right? Mm. Because they were so different. And I love the accents and just the act. Like I remember being a little kid eating meals with Sean Thompson in my parents' house and just in awe of like, what a like, I'd never seen class like that mm. in my life. But then, like, some Australian would come and stay at the house that my dad was making boards for, and I never saw just, like, rashness like that. <laughs> and so I was always like, man, ev- everywhere else is cooler in surfing than California. Ah, <laughs> oh, that is such a trip because, you know, everyone in the whole world thought California was the coolest place. Ah, it's a, it's a full-blown culture arm wrestle we're having here, mate. But I'll tell you what was yeah, tripping me yeah. out is, um, is that – your old man originally came from New Jersey, huh? That's right. Yep. Born in New Jersey. I mean, he left there when he was like one years old, but yeah, he's technically from the East Coast. Oh, okay. Yeah. I wasn't sure how long he was stuck there for because I was like, wow. Like, I mean, if you, if you start surfing there and, and you're growing up and you love surfing, you're going to bail to, to California like ASAP, I would imagine, back in those days. Yeah, yeah, no, he moved to uh, California pretty early and started surfing down in Encinitas is where he grew up. Wow, man. And so, you know, it, it's just so trippy because I, um, I I guess, you know, like having a little bit of a, a flick through your dad's life and, and just knowing, you know, far out. When, when I was a Grom, like, there was no doubt that Channel Islands was the number one, you know, the most important and the most influential board factory on earth at that point you know like i'm talking just right. this, even pre-slater you know like you, you had as you say sean thompson tom curran uh it, it was building yeah. into something pretty mad um yeah like far out what what was those early years like for you you know you're saying you got sean thompson coming to the house and and curran as an older brother like did you feel did you know it was it was special like or did you just sort of think that was how life was meant to be 
Yeah, you know what? I mean, it's one of those things where when you're growing up in it, it just is your life. So it, it doesn't really seem that special at the time. But I was aware that it was super rad. I mean, like, my dad was such a surf dog, man. And I remember, like, my dad would shape, like, hand shape a batch of, like, four new twin pins for Sean. Mm. And they would go down to Rincon. And they would surf all day long, switching the boards back and forth, my dad and Sean. And I'd be surfing a bit, and I'd be on the beach. I was pretty young, you know? And then they'd come back to the house that night, and they'd have the boards laid out on the living room floor and, like, looking at the rocker and comparing the foils and the fin placements and going through all this stuff. And then the next morning, first thing, my dad would be back in the shaping room making another couple more. And I had this sense, like, early on that, man, this is, like, a really special relationship between a, a shaper and a surfer, because I saw how much my dad loved these guys, but also like a really special craft. Because to me, like how dedicated he was. He would surf rink on all day, test those things out, and then go shape all day the next day and like do it again. And so I don't know if I had a sense of how special it was globally, but I had a sense of how special it was just like on a relational and craft level. To me, I was always intrigued. It's all I ever wanted to do mm. was make surfboards once I saw that. Far out, man. I mean, that is literally fucking as good as it gets. Hey, like you're surfing one day uh, and you're coming home with your team rider and you're just making every little adjustment that night, making boards, getting the hot mixes going. I mean, uh, you know, you hear Rabbit Bartholomew talk about this all the time when uh, Michael Peterson the Peterson brothers and himself and, and PT, they were, they were surfing during the day, like, and ripping boards to pieces at night, re-glassing them, almost burning their houses down because the hot, the mixes were so hot. Yeah. And then going back out the next day and, and trying to figure out, you know, like how that incremental difference that they'd made the night before was working. And to, to be a yeah. kid and to be sort of like wide-eyed and watching that happen in your own lounge room, Far out, man. There was no way you were going to be doing anything else when you grew up. <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty unreal, man. It was pretty unreal. A lot of feels around it. So, like, how old were you when you started sort of uh, getting on a plane? Or, like, was your dad sort of actively getting you in the room? And, and were you sort of naturally curious about learning about it, like, right from the very, very start when you saw that stuff happening? Yeah, I was always curious about it, and I spent so much time at the factory, you know, because my mom was, like, running the retail, and my dad was in the factory all the time. So when I was a kid, if I wasn't in school, there was really nowhere else for me to be. Mm. And I would just hang out in the factory, and, like, I have, I logged thousands of hours standing in my dad's shaping room doorway watching him shape. Just watching. I would just watch all day long. And then... Joe Curran and I, he was like my little buddy at the time, we started making miniature surfboards out of like the bones. You know, my dad would cut the raw blanks and the, the rail trimming that he cut off, those are called bones. And we would grab those bones and make like little 8 to 12 inch mini surfboards and just spend hours on them hand shaping these tiny little things. And that was kind of where I like started connecting curves in my mind and kind of trying to mimic what my dad did. And then by the time I was in my late teens, you know, I had a planer in my hand and was trying to figure it out. Far out, man. That that is almost carbon copy of, of Noah Dean's childhood. He would uh he would go in. I think his older brother or young brother. I can't remember if, uh, who's the oldest, but yeah, his older brother was into golf and was quite talented at it. And uh, Noah was kind of given the choice when he was a kid. He's like, you can either go play golf or you can go and watch, like, hang in the shaping bay with your dad, Wayne Dean, obviously, uh, like, master craftsman. And and so he did the same. He just, like, sat in the shaping bay for hours and hours and hours because he fucking hated golf. (laughs) And uh, he did the same thing, man. Just started making little boards and and really sort of had this sort of, like, like, spiritual understanding of boards, you know, not just... Not just the the sort of yeah. mathematics of them, but the feel of them, yeah. why they work the way they yeah. do, and and I think that's that's you know to have that as part of your DNA is just such a gift. You know that's that's something that ugh, what a pleasure to have been able to to have that. But I mean, uh, I'm like, is this pre Slater or is this uh, sort of around about the same time that Kelly comes onto the scene? This is pre-Slater. I mean, 
Well, I guess when I started shaping was right about the time that Kelly started riding my dad's boards, actually. Mm. So yeah, it was about the same time. Wow. So this is this is the big sort of turning point, and I guess that really I would imagine sort of uh, makes up a big part of your inspiration and motivation to shape because your dad uh when he's when he's bringing these boards home every night when he's doing that work with sean thompson and tom curran and he is all about maximizing performance like there's not a whole lot else going on in surfing at this time and it and it, and it starts sort of narrowing uh into like well, figuratively and literally you know everything starts to narrow yeah. into this into this such a, a high performance sort of um, focus that the boards just begin to change radically. Like, a, what was that? What your dad's whole whole motivation was with his shaping, just to make the most Formula One surfboard that he could make. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. My dad was always concerned with performance and progression. I mean, that. That's always what he's concerned about. And his whole vibe was this, you know, he was aware of how talented Kelly was from pretty much right away. And Kelly would spend a lot of time with us at the house and, you know, he was always around. And so my dad would always say like, listen, Kelly is a better surfer than I am a shaper. And the only thing that holds Kelly back is his surfboard. He would say, you know, Kelly in his mind is imagining lines and turns on a wave that the board just won't allow him to do. So my dad was always chasing that thing. He always believed that the surfers were better than the boards. The boards is what held them back. So how could he keep up with the surfers and make those boards better? And then that's really what caused boards to go narrow and same with more rocker at that time. Is my dad's thought process was, well, the board's holding them back because there's so much surfboard. So the less wetted surface area, the better. So that's why boards got narrow and thin and decreased in volume and more rocker, more board out of the water, was he just thought the board's holding them back, the less board, the better. And that's really kind of what drove it in that direction. For better or for worse, right or wrong, that was the thought process. Far out, man. That is, I, that's an incredible philosophy for someone who is an inventor, you know, at heart. You know, you're basically trying to solve problems that are completely imaginative, <laughs> you know, like they're coming out of deep imagination and you're trying to, to put that imagination into a place where it can be practical. Fuck, it's, it's, it's yeah. Einstein-y. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. <laughs> so I've got to ask you, like, um, what was the energy like in your house and around the business when – Slater and the slippers and that new generation start completely popping off. Like it, yeah. it, it changed everything for, for not just surfing in general, but your particular household must have just been wild in those times. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, the board changes were incremental and happening over a few years. So it was hard to, in the moment kind of realize how, truly transitional and transformational that was. But I guess the way that is easier to measure was all the relationships, you know, like all of a sudden my dad's team and then all my friends were Kelly and Rob and Taylor Knox and that whole crew coming up during that time, you know, and all of a sudden you look around and you're like, Dude, these are all the best surfers mm. in the world. And like, those are my dad's boys. Like, you know, that's our crew. And so they are always around and, I, I get, you know, the Malloy brothers and just that whole momentum generation was all involved with the boards. And that's when you kind of look around and knew, like, man, this is special. Especially when, like, they were knocking down, you know, beating down the door of Tom Carroll and Tom Kern and that whole previous generation. And you realize, like, dude, my friends and my peers are the gnarliest guys on earth. Mm. And they're all on my dad's board. So at that point, there's definitely, like, a lot of momentum. The vibes were super high. And it felt really special. It was pretty evident at that point. And do you remember, like, you know, much competitiveness within the group towards, like, getting the best designs off your dad? Because uh, there's that famous story where, you know, I think Morris shaped a, 
a board for Rob that Kelly liked the look of and stole in France. And, and you know, because these guys, it starts off as uh, a full collective and they're, as you say, you know, challenging the, the big dogs. But eventually they have to start challenging each other for world titles. Were you aware that there was yeah. sort of tension in some of the relationships or did your dad just sort of manage to, you know, uh, keep all of that on track and, and not part of their of, of his sort of world with those guys? Because I'd imagine that any advantage is something that every single one of those surfers on his team is looking for. Yeah, for sure. You know, I mean, my dad had a really special relationship with Kelly. I think Kelly's biological father at the time was, you know, in some pretty rough spaces. And my dad really became like a father to Kelly. And for us, you know, surfboards is about relationships. And I guess that's one of the main things that my dad modeled for me is like, he just had such a profound and genuine love for the people that he made boards for. And I think that comes through in the surfboards. Um, but for Kelly, he really had a special relationship with Kelly. Tom is the same way before that, but so whether he was cognizant of it or not, and I'm actually sure he was, Kelly kind of got the best juice. You know what I'm saying? Like Kelly definitely was top dog. And I think that the other part of that was Kelly was so smart design wise and so involved in his equipment. And that's what really excites a shaper. You know, like I've got a lot of surfers who don't know anything about their surfboards mm. and they either work or they don't. And that's one thing. Cool. I'll make you a bunch. But when you have a surfer who like really intuitively understands surfboards and can really help you make changes that are truly better, then that's a really exciting thing for a shaper. Joao Chianca is like that for me right now. That kid gets surfboards like nobody else I've ever shaped for. Oh. Um, but Kelly was that guy for my he was Kelly was that way for my dad. So I think because of that and the nature of the relationship, I think Kelly was kind of he got the best of my dad for sure. Now, later on, it got trippy when Andy came in the mix because my dad was making a lot of boards for Andy when Kelly and Andy wanted to kill each other. <laughs> and that got interesting. My dad had, like, sleepless nights over that. He felt that turmoil when he was making boards for both those guys during that little stint. That was pretty heavy. You could feel that in the house. That was heavy. Oh, wow. And so uh, what was... You know, I mean, I, I can imagine Andy turning up and just being completely open about it, just saying, what are you shaving for Kelly? Like, I want to see it and all that sort of stuff. I can't imagine him being kind of holding back and respecting that space too much, you know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. I mean, Andy was Andy, you know, but like, you know, my dad thought long and hard about whether or not he should make boards for Andy and Andy was willing to buy the boards. You know, my dad never gave him any boards. He was just buying them. And, you know, I think Kelly was gnarly enough to be like, yeah, make them boys. I'm not afraid of that. Um, so it was, it was a pretty interesting time for sure. And, you wow. know, Shane Beshin, same thing. You know, when Shane and Kelly were at each other for a few months there, my dad was making both their boards. And Rob and Kelly, same thing. So he was kind of always in the middle of those gnarly relationships. Yeah, well, that's what he I was... navigated it well, but it, it was exciting. Yeah, that's what I was sort of getting at before. You know, like you, you've got to manage these... Because at the end of the day, they're, they're massive egos. They're looking for an advantage. And uh, as much as they love and trust your dad, they're equally as competitive against each other. So it's a tricky situ. Yeah. But, man, where were you, like, while all of this was happening? I mean, uh, momentum generation from start to finish is a good 25 years uh, of, of surfing on tour. And, um, yeah, so, so when did you start to sort of – did you get an in? Were you able to sort of, like – to make boards for, for these guys uh, in their prime? Yeah, I did a bit of that. So I, I started shaping for my dad and obviously had a you know period of learning. And then he started me on production shaping. And um, I did years and years of production shaping for my dad. And then he started letting me do a few team boards here and there. Um, you know, I was making some boards for the Malloys at the time. And uh, I was also making a few boards for Tom Curran, and I was Dane Reynolds' first shaper. So the first time that Dane ever got a board made for himself, I made that board. So, yeah, I was making boards for those guys. And uh, sometimes it would get weird between my dad and I, you know what I mean? Because I can remember one instance where Dan Malloy came and got a board for me, 
And my dad was normally making his boards and Dan was like, this is the best board I've ever had. <laughs> and then, you know, it got weird. It got weird with my dad. Same thing happened with Tom Curran. I did some handshakes for Tom Curran in Europe one time. And uh, he called me up and was like, man, I want more of these. This thing's unreal. And it, it got a little weird with my dad. Like, you know, I, I just had to kind of bow out on some of those situations. And Boy, it wasn't that my dad was ever lame about it. It was just kind of like, hey, that's, that's my guy. And I put in all the work. And, like, you're my kid. You're not just going to step in and all of a sudden, like, get all the juice. So that was pretty rad. I kind of liked it when that happened. That motivated me. You know, I shaped all Dane's boards until Dane was like super huge. And then one day my dad came in my room and was like, I'll be shaping Dane's boards now. <laughs> no, he did not. How old were you when that happened? <laughs> uh, let me think. I was probably like, I was like in my mid-20s. Yep. Far yeah. out, man. See, I would have thought it was the other way around. Like, did you, I would have thought you would have been sort of feeling this intense pressure to live up to the standard and even the philosophy, you know, of, of your dad's legacy, which is, uh, you know, high-performance Formula One surfboards for the best surfers in the world. That comes with so much pressure and, and obviously, you know, a, a lifetime of work that you can't really squeeze into, you know, you can't squeeze it into uh, a short sort of apprenticeship. But... At the same token, yeah. what you're saying, you know, just from osmosis, being around it, seeing it, having a sort of innate understanding of it, you're able to pick it up quickly and start getting results with these guys. And it's your dad who's actually feeling the pressure. <laughs> That's classic, dude. <laughs> That's classic to me. So, yeah. like, all right, well, look. So, I'm, what I'm seeing here is that the, there's a the big shift starting to happen when Dane pops on the scene. He's a, a bit of a wonder kid. And he's your first rider. But surfing at this time is starting to splinter as well. Like, we're starting to see this Thomas Campbell film, Seedling and and whatnot. We're starting to see Joel Tudor sort of open up doors to uh, a, a sort of a forgotten aspect of surfing, which is just doing it for fun, not just to rip. So when did that sort of uh, culture shift start to... to influence your creativity because i would imagine that your old boy wasn't really looking at that at all he would have been eyes only on the you know that top end formula one race car so when did that that culture shifting start to influence channel islands yeah you know my my dad hated that stuff man i remember rob machado begging my dad to make him like single fins and fishes and stuff like that when that when that shift was happening, right, during that time. And my dad was so down on it. He was so over it, man. He hated looking backwards. I remember I being in the room and him saying to Rob, like, Rob, I shaped those things like 30 years ago. Mm. I don't want to do this. And he was always so frustrated when people were going backwards. He only ever wanted to go forward. And so I definitely have a strong ethos in that same way. There's a huge part of me that's that way now. I mean, 99% of my focus and my passion is on high-performance surfboards. The other stuff I, I respect and uh, I do, and it scratches a certain itch more as a surfer than a shaper. I don't really love shaping those kind of boards. I think more as a surfer I'm intrigued, and that gets me shaping them. But, man, nothing is harder and nothing's more rewarding than, like, the high-performance boards. So I think we as Channel Islands have affected us because, like, we've got to be in the marketplace, right? And then if one of your marquee riders, like Rob Machado, wants to ride those kind of boards, and then later on, Dane, the dumpster divers and stuff like that, you kind of got to do it. Uh, but honestly, it's not the most exciting part. Fuck, man, that's crazy because you guys actually make so many good variations of different boards <laughs> across that whole that whole gamut. Like, uh, And, and it, it's reflected yeah. in your team too, man. Like, uh, you know, I guess up the pointy end, you've got your, your Slaters, your Bobbies, your Zhao Shiankas, uh, Lakey Peterson, Lisa Anderson, all that crew. But, I mean, looking at the team, you've got uh, fucking Aton Osborne, who, who likes really, you know, strange shapes. You've got Mikey February, obviously, who's on the mids and and doing all sorts of stuff on yeah. the twins. You've got Curran on free scrubbers and, and those boards. Like, man, it seems like if you're going to bother to go into that space, there's still 
an element of like wanting to make sure you're the best in that in that zone. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And we we want to be the best at what we do. Like, you know, I've got that much pride in what I do, and that much pride in our heritage and stuff. We want to be the best. If we're going to do it, our, our whole spiel is like, if we're going to do it, we're going to try to do it the best. And you know, when you've got a surfer like Tom Curran asking you for a board, or Mikey February, like you want to make it killer, you know, you want to do that stuff and it's worthwhile, but that's not like the hardest thing to do. The hardest thing to do is the formula on board. Mm. You know, those tiny incremental changes, those almost imperceptible things that you just intuitively barely see and feel like that's the stuff that as like a creator and a craftsman and an innovator, that's the stuff that like keeps me up at night. Like, I wake up in the middle of the night thinking about surfboards. I'm not thinking about a fish. I'm thinking about a CI Pro. I'm thinking about the most high performance thing. Mm. So that's just, I think, what excites, excites me as a creator. You know what I mean? The other stuff is fun and cool, and we want to do it well, but like the pointy edge is the hardest place. Man, that's, yeah, that's really interesting. I, I love that. I'm just so curious to know, like, how long did it take for, for Channel Islands to sort of have to accept that those changes were happening? Like, was, was it a really tough discussion for you guys in there uh, to, to know that, you know, the Machados, uh, the Mikeys, the Dane, even Dane, man, like, I mean, his, his, what he wants and what he sees and understands the high-performance board looks nothing like what, you know, Slater saw as, as the same thing. So... How hard was it for you to like, uh, you know, sit down with Dane and, and just try and wrap your head around the fact that he wanted to get a saw and cut like four inches off the base of his board and not even round it off? <laughs> yeah, right, right. You know what I mean? Like you, 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 in a way, it's kind of the same thing. Like in his mind, he's doing to you what Slater did to your dad, where he's like, I think yeah, right, this will work, yeah. but you're going dude, there's no fucking way that's going to work. Like, you've got to find that middle ground. But, I mean, were you lying in bed at night like your old man, just going, how the fuck am I going to make this thing work? Yeah, you know, I do, I do. And, you know, someone like Dane is an exceptional case because he really understands boards well and, and most of his ideas work. But with other ideas, I, I, I guess, honestly, what sort of, drives me philosophically there is the other thing my dad taught me is that the job of the shaper is to serve the surfer. Mm. Like the shaper is not most important. The surfer is most important. And our job is to serve the surfers. So, which I think is a change from a lot of shapers. I don't want to be the grumpy old shaper who's like, what are you talking about, kid? I know how surfboards work. I'll make yep. you the right thing. You're like, my dad was never that guy. My dad is like, we got to serve these people. They're the you know, they're the real talent. So when I'm confronted with that, if it's Dane or Mikey Fabs or someone else that wants something interesting, I fall back on that ethos. I'm like, okay, this relationship and this person and what they want to feel are more important than my ideas. So I need to listen and try to make their dreams, what they want to feel, their desires on a wave come true. So that gets me over like my ego and my need for high performance boards and helps me just lean into that stuff to try to make them Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That makes perfect sense. And then I just got to know, you know, like uh, the current, we just brought that up before uh, the twins that he was riding down in Mexico over COVID. uh, It it was so joyful for people to reconnect with his surfing and that freedom. And I think the fact that there was no one around and like there was a lot playing into it, I guess uh, during that time. But yeah, what's what's the conversation like with Tom when he orders a board? Uh, let's say in comparison to uh, Bobby Martinez. Yeah, you know Tom in particular on that free scrubber. He came in and he goes, "I'm sitting in my shaping right now, so I'm looking at the same template that you're looking at." He goes, "Hey, I want a board, a twin fin like your dad used to make me, and here's where those were cool, but they actually really worked bad, right?" Boards back then just didn't work that good. So he says, I want a board that's like what he used to make me, but I want it to work better. So that was a call. And he was super particular. Dude, you would trip out on Tom Curran. Mm. He remembers, he remembers like rocker numbers, V measurements, 
oil flows and all this stuff from like the early 80s, in his brain, he's got those numbers. Like he would say to me, he'd go, okay, so your dad made me this one twin fin in 81. And it had one and five eighths inch tail rocker. And the nose was three and a quarter. And he'd say, and it had a half inch V one foot up from the tail. And then it tapered to a quarter inch in the middle of the board. Like he remembered those measurements. It was the heaviest thing. I was tripping out, dude. Oh, man. I was like, how does anybody have those numbers in their head? And then because he got me all inspired talking about those numbers, I went through one of my dad's old files. We have all these files in the building from when my dad used to shape for those Mm -hmm. guys. And I was looking up Tom Curran's files because my dad had all those notes. And he, all the notes that my dad took on those measurements, Tom was spot on in his memory. And then I found this letter in there that he had written for my dad when he moved to France. And it was like a five-board order. And he told my dad the rocker measurements of every single board, every 12 inches down the bottom of the board, the foil flow and the concaves and the V, he had them called out in numbers. And that was his board order. (laughs) Dude, heaviest thing in the world. No one else has ever done that. I was tripping. How do you shape a board for someone that on it? You must just, I can't even imagine it. Honestly, pretty heavy. Yeah, where do you start? (laughs) You're just like picking up the plane and looking at the plane going, oh my God, this is terrifying. But I mean, you did it. You did it. He must have been pretty frothing on that, especially for you guys to, you know, churn out an actual model of it. Um, What what did he think of that? I mean, clearly the surfing speaks for itself, but what, what was his feedback? He was stoked. You know, we went through a few iterations, as you always do, and a few changes. And he was pretty particular, you know, and be like, hey, I want it thinner through this section. Uh, I want less V here. Um, you know, I want the rail to be a little more down here. And then, you know, I make him a bunch, and he'd go away, and he'd come back, and, like, half of them were sawn up. Like, he took a saw and, like, sawed it, like, cut out the back outline to change the outline. And then he like saw off some of the rails and cover it and glue foam and like, you know, glue it on and all this crazy stuff. And I was just like, dude, this is the craziest thing in the world. <laughs> and we was, got there and the board is thick. Uh, I was going to ask you about that. Like you, when you see him doing all these alterations and stuff, does any of it make sense to you? Or are you just like watching Frankenstein make his monster kind of thing? He goes into a different realm that I don't understand. Dude. Yeah. Yeah, to be in Tom Curran's brain, I'm man. Like, I mean, like, yeah, into the current yeah, verse. It's a strange place. Um, and so, then, like, he'd come back to me with some feedback, and I'd be like, "Hey, man, I don't even know what you're talking about, but I'll, I'll try to do something." <laughs> yeah, I, look, I love what you're saying about you know the relationships serving the surfer. I mean, we've seen in surfing history that there's the focal points of cutting edge design are always a team. It's never just one person, you know, like you can't have Merrick without Curran and Slater, but you can't have Curran and Slater without Merrick. So it's that sort of yin and yang, Oki and Rusty, and then Oki and Dahlberg later on. And then even Oki and JS, like really late. But, you know, there's always, there's always the, the symbiotic nature of these relationships. Mick and DHD springs to mind, uh, Florence and Pizel, Sharp Eye and, and, you know, Jack Robbo and Felipe at the moment. And, uh, yeah, man, I'm uh, like, who are, are the relationships that you're getting a lot out of? You mentioned Xiao Xianka before, and I can't imagine almost like how much joy seeing that guy surf in the past two years has given you. Cause he, to me actually looks like a formula one race car when he surfs. Like, is yeah. is that the relationship that is giving you sort of like the most excitement at the moment or, or who are the crew that, you, that you've really learned the most from? Yeah, I think big picture, probably the guy I've learned the most from is Dane Reynolds. Mm. Uh, he's, he's just super surfboard smart and super engaged, you know, and so I've learned a ton from him and he's just a really sweet guy and super fun to work with. Beyond him, Mikey February's been really inspiring. And that kind of goes into a lot of those alternate boards. He obviously rides high-performance boards, too. But he's probably the guy who gets me excited as much as I can be about alternate boards, alternative boards. Um, And he's inspiring to work with. And really, it's just from 
and surfing, you know, just watching him surf uh, is inspiring in itself. And then he's always got cool ideas. But the guy who's probably like pushing me the most right now is Joao. Mm. Mm. And, and like, yeah, and Joao, Joao has like crazy, crazy surfboard smarts. I mean, he's a kid, he's so young. But a lot of guys, especially pro surfers that I've worked with over the years, just have bad ideas. They yeah. come in and they're like, hey, I want this. And it, it's a bad idea. You do it and it, it didn't help the board. But everything that Joao has said up in the last couple of years that we've been working together, every suggestion he's made has improved the board. And he's not just throwing shit at the wall. He's like very, very succinctly, um, particularly saying, if we change this thing, I think it'll be better. And it is every time. He's really so forward smart. Far out, man. Yeah, I, I think his performances in the past two years – I mean, you know, so much talk about the Brazilian storm, but he kind of just came from nowhere. I did see him surf in a lot of those uh, Vulcan Pipe Pros over the years just because I was over there commentating them. So I kind of knew who he was, but him on open-faced water, like the speed and the just full clinical rail game that he's got is so sick to watch. And I don't know if many crew are really pushing it as hard as he does uh, start to finish on a wave. Yeah, I agree. It's pretty exciting. Man. It's pretty exciting. That's awesome, man. And then as a kind of like a, I guess, a bonus for you in in terms of like what your passion is and what motivates you is is doing these Stab in the Dark events, which you've had a lot of success in most recently, probably uh, the Jack Robbo win. Um, yeah, give us a bit of an idea about sort of what it's like to be in, in that environment and, and creating for sort of like the unknown and and i don't know what, what do you learn from that like is that fun or is it stressful or how do you go when you, you don't actually know who you're shaping for yeah you know it's fun and it's stressful i mean it's kind of like competitive surfing right like anyone that's on on the ct loves it it's super fun but it's also stressful right it's like the gnarliest thing in the world and it's their livelihood and it's really challenging and I don't know if all the shapers feel this way but I kind of feel like the stab in the dark or like the CT for shapers mm. you know and I feel like winning that thing is like winning a world title it's like the closest thing that shapers have to winning a world title so it's stressful in that sense that it's like I feel like the stakes are high and it means a lot to me and I think it means a lot to the other guys you know it's a competition with your peers and but it's also so much fun, man. I love doing it. And then it's so rewarding when you win. Like, uh, I love the fact that it's all or nothing. You either win or nobody cares, which is <laughs> rad. But, like... Yeah, yeah. But, like, you know, what, what do you learn, the, man? Like, do, do you learn... Like, I would imagine, you know, watching Jack Robbo surf a board that you've designed, uh, he's going to be doing things and feeling it out purely on... And it is purely on feel. That's kind of the genius of the whole idea. Um, yeah, what, what do you take away from, from just watching the performance of, of having someone get, get on your board for the first time? Yeah, I mean, you definitely go back to that board and you're like, okay, what did I do? Because that, that works. So <laughs> I've learned a lot both times. Like when, you know, when we won with Mick, uh, I'm, I just shaped a board that was an exact replica of what I made for Mick in that one today. I just shaped one today for one of our riders. You know, and that's still super relevant. I learned a ton from that one. What's cool is, like, every time I come to that table for Stab in the Dark, you're trying to do something new, you're trying to do something fresh, and you're not sure if it's going to work. And, and once you see that it does, then you go back to that thing. You're like, okay, there's a lot to be gleaned here. So I've learned a lot, especially, you know, from the Robo one lately. Like, um, that's our most popular team design now, the CI Pro. You know, almost everyone on the team is riding it. And, you know, it validates it. And I think it gives you confidence that when you're in the shaping room, then shaping for your team riders, you're like, okay, I have a really solid base here. And now I can keep progressing from here. Man, what does progression look like from here? Like, I love getting a chat here because, you know, progression is where you're at. That's your focus. What are surfboards going to look like in in five years' time? And, and like, what are you working on now that, that you feel like is going to take us there? 
Yeah, man, I've been asked that question so many times over the years. Ah, uh, well, everyone wants an edge. Everyone wants an edge, Britt. Well, because you know what? Honestly, what is surfboards going to look like in five years? I think they're going to look exactly like they look like now. I mean, that's the the lame answer, but I think it's the truth, right? Like boards now look like they did five years ago. There's just little trends. Like currently, you know, amongst the CT boards have a bit more rocker and a bit more curve than they did five years ago. And that's just something that ebbs and flows. And everyone's excited about carbon right now. We're all experimenting with carbon and doing this different stuff, but it's nothing new, right? Carbon has been around for decades. And still 90% of the boards that we make are PU blanks with, with PE foam. And so I would love to say that, man, five years from now, there's going to be this radical change. But we're making surfboards out of the same shit we were making surfboards from 50 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it's pretty gnarly. You know what I mean? Like, we love to talk about progression in surfboards. But when I talk about progression, I'm talking about adding a 16th of an inch to this curve right here. Mm. Because I'm pretty sure that next year I'm still going to be making them out of PU blanks and, and poly, you know, the same resin so kind of a trippy thing yeah yeah i kind of feel uh i'd love to get your take on this i feel like from when the slipper and and slater and, and your dad really you know had that huge influence over what people were writing all over the world i feel like that may not happen again like it seems like there's a, a standard of of average surfer is is pretty high like if you've been surfing for a long time or all of your life the average surfer is a pretty good surfer these days and there's a lot of beginners and stuff who are obviously riding whatever suits them but i still think in that kind of if you're not in that elite conversation and you're just a weekend warrior i do sense that you're riding pretty much the right board for you these days it doesn't seem like people are trying to ride something that is just completely out of their their field of talent uh, do, do, would you yeah. say that's kind of true from what you've witnessed and and the way that you know models get sold and and the popularity popularity of different models that that go through ci yeah i, I think you're absolutely right about that i mean a few years ago i think with alternative craft stuff it kind of cracked everything open where people realized like okay i can ride whatever i want and what I want to actually do is catch waves, right? You're not having fun if you're not catching waves. Mm. So I think you're absolutely right, Bonnie. Like those days of everyone struggling or under volume boards are gone and people feel more comfortable and more volume these days. And that's a good thing because surfing is meant to be fun. And, you know, I make surfboards so that people can have fun and have life-changing moments on boards. So that only happens if you're catching waves. So I want people to be on the right amount of volume you know, the right sort of plan shape so that they're catching waves and having maximal fun. Mm. And that reflects in the sales. Like our, our best-selling board last year was a Happy Every Day, which is like a shorter, wider, short board, kind of a step down. And that was 20% of our global sales last year was that one design. So, you know, that kind of tells you, like, it's a, it's a you know, chubby little everyday board. Mm. Yeah, it's funny, man. Like a lot of my friends uh, who are excellent surfers, I have to... Better just say that because they they will ride the same board in almost everything. Like Noah Dean, for example, he's got a uh, a model that he just rides in everything. He rides them in those slabs. He rides them in like one foot, two foot sloppy little beaches. He rides them in really big mm. surf and uh, and that's just his go to board. But I'm in a world now where I've got to have three boards. Like I, I need th- a three board quiver and. I'm pretty much happy there, man. I can, I can kind of like if I'm feeling a bit lazy, I'll ride ride like something a bit longer. If I'm feeling like the surf just has no push, I'll ride something really quite short and stubby. And then if I'm feeling like on, I can I can just ride a pretty standard shorty. And between those three choices, man, I've never had more fun. And it took me a long, long time mm. to figure that out. Hey, like a long time. <laughs> mm. Right. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I think you can get away with just a few boards. And, you know, for me, like uh, riding the same surfboard all all the time gets a little boring, right? We're always looking for that new feel, that new line that we could draw, that new, like, speed pickup and that different sensitivity. So I think a minimum of three boards is good because the more you mix it up, you keep it fresh and exciting. 
Yeah, that's it. Exactly, man. And, yeah. uh, you know, I think, like you say, you know, it's about maximising how much fun you're having far out. Life is so busy, or at least we all pretend we're so busy doing things that, you know, I, I, we feel are important. But that time in the water, you got to make it. you got to make it the most joyful part of your day or far out. If you're stressing about it or you're worried about your boards, it's just such a waste. Absolutely, man. It's a, we have to remember that in the surf industry. Like, we're in this thing because it's fun. That's it, right? exactly. It's fun. It's rewarding. It, it, like, I feel like if everyone in the world surfed, the world would be such a better place. Oh, mate, yeah. Well, you know, like, it just... Just makes you right as a human when you surf. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it'll it'll be a better place for some, for others. It'll drive you fucking crazy if the light up is that tact. <laughs> Man, it's been an absolute pleasure to just you know trawl through your history and uh, and pick your brain. And uh, it was cool. I was talking to Devin. And he he was saying that you've got a couple of new models coming out, and and um, I'm looking forward to seeing those. But uh, yeah, man. I mean, what what sort of goals? What sort of uh, what's what's your personal future look like? I mean, what's what's the uh, success going to be for you over the next couple of years? Uh, well, you know, I want to continue to steward this thing that is Channel Islands. Well, it's really important. You know, it's my heritage and my family's legacy. And you and own it, right? Everyone that's involved here. Yeah, yeah. Far so out. Along with. My partners, you know, Dane Reynolds is part owner, Lakey's part owner, Yaden Nickel, the Gadowskis brothers. So it's owned by uh, myself and a couple of employees that we've had here for 25 years that worked for my parents and then a bunch of team members. So it's pretty rad. It's pretty fun to be partners with all those guys. That's so sick, man. And, and, and so we want to we steward that well. We want to take that into the future. And then, uh, you know, I want to win some world titles. Yes. Yes, spoken like a true Beric man. <laughs> <laughs> that's great, mate. Well, look, yeah, uh, ah, oh, look. It's uh, as I say, you know, uh, I, I wish you all the best for that. There's no doubt that you are, you know, flying that flag, that Merrick flag, in terms of just making sure that high performance, cutting edge, full blown, fucking race cars is is uh, right at the top of the agenda there, and uh, it's been an amazing. It's just been an amazing story in surfing, mate. Your your family legacy is huge, and it's just an it's such a pleasure to see what you've been able to do with it since you've taken stewardship of the uh, of the company. So yeah, congrats, man, and uh, we really wish you all the best for the future as well. Ah, uh, thanks, man. I really appreciate it. those are kind words, and I'm stoked, man. So stoked, yeah. I never thought I'd be on with the Swellians. This is sick. Yeah, well, uh, hopefully, I think, I don't know if this was, because uh, we, we were going to do a US tour there for like one second, and we were going to come and do one at oh. the CI factory, uh, a live show. Yeah. So if that comes off, mate, we will definitely be heading up there to, to hang out with you guys. Unreal, dude. Can't wait. That'll be unreal. Good on you, Britt. Thanks for your time, legend. Thanks, brother. Good Talk soon. Bye, Have mate. Ain't no sunshine when she's gone. Ain't no sunshine when she's gone This house ain't no home Yeah, get it, India We're going to India